I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another History Hack. Alina has gone and done something rather unusual for Alina. What have you done? (laughs) So, I have invited the fabulous Nikolai Eberholst to on to our chat today. He's a historian and archivist specializing in the First World War, Austro-Hungary specifically. You probably know him best as Pipe Gray on Twitter. And if you don't follow him, then make sure you do. This, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be the first part of three episodes on Austro-Hungary in the First World War. The First World War, ladies. Did you hear what I did? The First World War. And it's, it's epic and amazing. Nikolai, she usually doesn't give First World War historians the time of day. <laughs> As you heard before we came on air, she was laughing at me for yeah. never having done the Eastern Front when I then, <laughs> it was just proofs, it proves that she's never read any of my books because I have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm honored to be here. I'm, I'm he glad lied. to be here. <laughs> Oh no, we're thrilled to have you. Um, oh, any chance to talk about Austria-Hungary. Oh, your Twitter feed is immense. So much good visual <laughs> stuff on there as well. Thank you. Um, but we will obviously tag you when this goes out, but you must follow him because he comes up with some absolutely brilliant stuff. He's a bit of a Twitter, <laughs> Twitter legend. Um, but let's start with, tell us about the Austro-Hungarian Empire just before the First World War. It's a bit of a mess, isn't it? It is. It is a massive, you know, it's a massive empire right in the in the middle of of uh, europe in central europe and it is if you look at a map today you know it 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 comprises a lot of land that uh, today is of course part of austria and hungary and then uh, the czech republic slovakia slovenia croatia bosnia herzegovina southern poland uh, northern serbia western ukraine northwestern romania and some slides of of what is today Montenegro and uh, and uh, northern Italy, so it's a big, massive country in the heart of Europe, and um, as the name suggests, it's a it's a, a dual monarchy uh, consisting of two monarchies of Austria and Hungary. Um, this is largely the result of uh, some defeats in the eighteen uh, hundreds, uh, specifically uh, against Italy, and uh, then the Austro-Prussian War in eighteen sixty six. The uh, Austrian power before that, it was just Austria, um, is weakened and the the Hungarians make this bid for independence and they reach a a compromise in 1867, um, granting Hungary self-rule and independence while maintaining a union with Austria under the same monarch who will then be emperor in Austria and 
king in Hungary, but it's the same guy. And uh, besides the monarch, the only other thing that really joins Austria and Hungary is uh, a shared foreign ministry, uh, a joint finance ministry, and then, of course, the uh, imperial and royal army. Everything is imperial and royal because it's an empire and a kingdom. Unless it's specific to one part, then it's, for example, a royal Hungarian institution. Um, and what further complicates the whole thing is that there are all these smaller parts of it who, who gain some sort of uh, autonomy. For example, uh, the kingdom of Croatia, Slavonia is made in, in 1868 as an autonomous region within the kingdom of Hungary. And the de facto ceding of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina to Austria-Hungary by the Ottoman Empire in 1878, uh, following the, the latter's defeat in the Russo-Turkish War, makes another strange state within the empire um, because to not to not uh, upset the uh, power balance between Austria and Hungary, the the region of Bosnia and Herzegovina is actually uh, administered by the finance ministry, which is a joint ministry. So it's a really, really, really complex state. Um, now, another important aspect of, of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire is, of course, that it's a multinational state. And um, of the 50 or so million inhabitants in around the time when the First World War breaks out, the uh, two largest ethnic groups is uh, naturally the Germans at around 23% and the Hungarians or the Magyars at around 20%. But the majority of the empire's inhabitants are Slavs, um, with the largest groups being the Czechs, the Croats, and the Poles. And now there's a constant power struggle between all these ethnic groups um, throughout pretty much the whole lifetime of the empire. But it's too much to go into now. But generally, they're all loyal towards the emperor, Franz Josef I of the House of Habsburg. And um, Franz Josef, who in uh, 1914 is a, is a young man of, of 83. Uh, he's a popular and unifying grandfather figure for, for, for most of the empire. However, he's also a kind of unhappy man who, who um, he's witnessed his empire shrink over the course of his 43-year uh, rule. Well, just his family um, as well is a yeah, miserable experience, isn't it? It is a miserable experience. His, his wife is assassinated in 1898, uh, and his son, the sole heir, uh, commits suicide in sort of a weird suicide pact with his mistress in uh, 1889. This is brilliant, um, this story. Let's just, just quickly do it because yeah. George V, his worst nightmare was ending up with this guy. So he <laughs> he got married, didn't like his wife, mm. knocked her up, made her mm. infertile with all his STDs and then got obsessed with a teenage girl um, and yeah. they committed suicide together. Uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant story. It's a yeah. brilliant story. And it just, it just reeks of that old Europe of royal families and intrigues and, yeah. and strangeness. Anyway, as a result of this, uh, of uh, the uh, the heir dying, the uh, brother of the empire, Karl Ludwig, becomes the heir to the throne. And when he dies in uh, 1896, his son, who is Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand, who we'll, of course, talk more about, is the heir to the throne. So... Let's talk a little bit about Serbia. How does, well, Serbia is so far away. How does Serbia fit into this whole narrative? Well, the, the uh, relationship between uh, Austria-Hungary and Serbia is a complicated one. And the conflict really starts um, 
the conflict that will ultimately lead to the, the First World War starts around 1903 when uh, the king of Serbia, Alexander Brnovich, and his, his wife, uh, Queen Draga, are uh, brutally murdered in a coup carried out by a group of army officers led by this, this strange, mysterious character called uh, Captain Dragutin Dmitrievich, uh, who is also known uh, under this uh, nickname Apis, or codename, uh, who will later be leading the, um, the uh, Black Hand Society, which is responsible for the assassination of, of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in, uh, in June of 1914. Now, uh, Apis is actually badly wounded during this coup, so he's shot three times in the chest and is almost killed. So, so there's a big what if for you. Uh, what if he had been killed? Would there have been... Uh, a world war, and there will be many, many, many more what ifs uh, leading to to the beginning of the first world war. Anyway, um, the Obrenovich dynasty had mostly been allied and friendly towards uh, Austria-Hungary, but the new king uh, Peter the First comes from a ri rival dynasty. He has much more closer ties to to Russia and to France, and especially Russia. He will the two countries will become sort of uh, de facto allies. Um, almost immediately. And uh, this, uh, this new Serbia um, becomes a constant worry for Austria-Hungary, who, who fears that the rising Serbia, aiming to unite all southern Slavs in a greater Serbia, might fuel ethnic tensions and uprisings within the empire. Um, then um, the, uh, in, uh, in 1908, uh, Austria-Hungary annexes Bosnia, which has just been, been under their administration so far, uh, which uh, sparks this uh, the Balkan crisis of 1908, uh, and and the annexation is is really condemned by Serbia, uh, and the relationship deteriorates for deteriorates uh, further between the two states. And um, during the Balkan Wars of 1912 to 13, um, Serbia sees this dramatic expansion of territory, and now Austria-Hungary is viewed as the only thing keeping. Serbia from their goal of, of reuniting or, or, or uniting really uh, all these uh, southern Slav people in greater Serbia, uh, which is their dream ultimately. Um, yeah. Life gets more miserable for the emperor in June 1914, doesn't it? Yes, of course. Uh, the, um, in uh, in um, June 1914 and on the 28th of June, um, Arch. Duke von Ferdinand and, and his wife, Sophie, are, are shot dead by uh, Gavrilo Princip, who is this uh, young Serbian student and part of this Black Hand Society, um, doing a visit to Sarajevo in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And um, Austro-Hungarian officials, they, they quickly connect this uh, assassination to, to Serbian nationalist societies, these secret societies. Um, and if they... they uh, they proclaim that it, that it, this is a, a case of state-sponsored uh, terrorism on the parts of the Serbians. However, for um, for for many uh, officials uh, in the Austro-Hungarian government and officers in the army, the the loss of the heir to the throne is actually less of a tragedy than it is a perfect opportunity to deal with these troublesome Serbs once and for all. And uh, what follows is this famously called the July crisis, which is um, much too large, much too complicated, and one of the most 
uh, written about topics of of all <laughs> history. So, so, so just, it is. But essentially, yeah. the Austrians give Serbia a document that one of the British politicians says is the most. I think it's Churchill says yeah. it's the most offensive ultimatum he's ever seen one nation give to another. It was quite demanding, wasn't it? It it, it was. It, it said that that. Um, that Austro-Hungarian uh, officials should be able to 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 carry out justice in in, in Serbia, uh, and and this is there's ten points uh, of this ultimatum which which is delivered in uh, in the end of July, on the twenty third of July, um, and uh, the point of 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 uh, of, uh, of all these points is of course to offend Serbia in a way. Mm -hmm. To put them in their uh, place, isn't it? Yeah, to put them in their place, or, or as a kind of hope to m make something so offensive that they can't do anything but reject it, and then they can they have a course for war. Yeah. Um, and Serbia actually accepts all of them except one, and uh, but that isn't enough for, for Austria, who is secretly, of course, wanting war. Mm -hmm. And on uh, the twenty eighth of Jul July, sorry. Um, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia, and already at one in the morning on the 29th, they uh, fire the first shots of the war against uh, uh, the Serbian capital of, of, of Belgrade. Let's talk a bit about the army, because we all love a bit of an army. <laughs> um, well, obviously, the Austrian-Hungarian army, because what other army are we going to be talking about? <laughs> what makes them so unique? Well, the army is, is, is very much a reflection of this complex and enormous empire uh, in many ways. Um, one of the most unique aspects is that, that, that there isn't just one army. Uh, it's more like three armies. Um, and this is, a, of course, a result of this being like a, a, an empire made of, of two smaller monarchies, or uh, in, in a way. And uh, so, so, so you have the common army, uh, the imperial and royal army, or the, the Kauka army, um, and this is the main army of the empire of Austria-Hungary, uh, and they recruit from all parts of the empire, and it's also the largest, naturally. Um, but then you also have these two small armies, these uh, smaller national armies, um, one for each part of the empire. So you have one for Austria, and you have one for Hungary, and they have their own, uh, like, ministry of war, and 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 like that they are proper armies uh, for austria uh, this is called the imperial royal uh, landwehr or the kk landwehr and for the um, the uh, the kingdom of hungary is called the royal hungarian hundred uh, in german uh, the ku hundred um and i'm sorry if i'm mispronouncing some of these foreign words i don't speak every single language of, of the, <laughs> of the uh, austrian, austrian empire, empire. yeah <laughs> um yeah, but, but these are smaller armies, and they recruit solely from their respective lands. Uh, so the Landwehr, for instance, only recruits from Austria and uh, not uh, Hungary and vice versa. Uh, now, originally, the uh, Landwehr and Hundred regiments were intended to be sort of second-rate formations, more like uh, we would know them in, in Germany, where the Landwehr is second-rate. But by 1914, uh, there really isn't much difference between these. It's just two smaller armies within the greater... Austro-Hungarian army, so it's very, very, very complicated, uh, and it and it becomes even more complicated because, as I said before, Croatia is also has some some uh, autonomous uh, uh, rights within the empire, and they make this uh, smaller yet army called the Royal Croatian Home Guard, which is just one last division but its own 
army as well in a way uh and then there's all these other small smaller parts for example bosnia and Herzegovina. they they recruit specifically a number of regiments from there the 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 famous Bosniakan, um, and they will become some of the most famous and, and most loyal troops within the empire and become famous because they're wearing fesses. A lot of them actually Muslim. Um, and the uh, second regiment, for example, will become the most uh, decorated uh, regiment of the Austro-Hungarian army of the war. Who is in command of this army? Yeah, the uh, the commander of this army is, um, is this uh, strange guy. <laughs> called um, uh, Franz Konrad von Hützendorf. And he, he is um, he's born in 1852, uh, and he, he has, uh, uh, he's educated from, from a very early age uh, in, in military academies and becomes a, a, a lieutenant in 1871 at just 19. Uh, and he will gradually rise in rank uh, over time um, and is in the end, uh, become in 1888, he becomes a major and he becomes uh, a, a professor uh, or the professor of uh, military tactics as, at the uh, Kriegsschule in Vienna, uh, will have uh, a, a pronounced influence on the tactics employed by the Austro-Hungarian army going into uh, the First World War. Uh, and as many of his time, he's a firm believer in the offensive and um, Austro-Hungarian uh, infantry taxes will appear very familiar to anyone who is studying uh, the French tactics of 1914. And furthermore, he's also a very po- good and popular teacher. Uh, and many of the um, the army's senior officers are his former students who remain loyal to him for a long time. Uh, in 1906, he becomes the chief of the general staff and... Um, as such, you can actually say that, that, that Conrad is both responsible for the strategy and the tactics of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the First World War because he's had such an influence on it before and now he's the chief of staff. Um, and he's a really strange character. I mean, first first off, he, he's perhaps the single most uh, responsible individual for, for, the, for the First World War. Uh, he's one who sees that that war is the only way to protect the empire from internal problems. And he will continue to push again and again and again, again uh, for, for war against Serbia and against Italy, who's uh, even an ally of Austria-Hungary. Uh, and in July 1914, his is going to be one of the loudest voices in Vienna pushing for war uh, with Serbia. But on the other side, he also has this strange uh, personal reasons for wanting to go to war. He's a widower, but he's fallen madly in love with uh, with a, a woman called Gina von uh, Reininghaus, who's uh, this mother of six, married to a wealthy industrialist, and he is absolutely obsessed with her. And they become lovers, and he wants to marry her, but uh, because Austria-Hungary is largely Catholic, this is frowned upon, and she doesn't want to. And as a result, he becomes convinced in his own head that the only way he can convince her to marry him is that if he's successful on the battlefield. And what do you need for that? You need a war. And in 1914, he's given just that. And this will be a, a thing that goes through his time as, as, a, as a commander, that he will always have this in the back of his mind that, oh, now, now I'm losing the war. What would she think? What will happen? Now I can't have her. So it's, he's a very strange character. 
How hot was she? Was she worth it? <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> thinking <to> it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone's thinking it. She must have been a looker. She must have. Yeah. For, 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 for you to start a world war, she, she has to look good, right? Yeah, you would hope. So anyway, we all know about the Schlieffen plan in the Western Front, how Germany planned to smash everybody out of the war and then mm. turn east. But, um, and France had plans and Britain had a deployment plan. What was Austria-Hungary's plan for the beginning of a European war? Yeah, uh, Conrad is, is sort of facing the same problems as uh, the Germans. Uh, he's facing a, a, a war on uh, on two fronts, uh, one against uh, Serbia in the south and Russia in the north. For Austria-Hungary, the eastern front is actually more of a northern front, so sometimes they call it the northern front, uh, so just to clarify that. Um, but he doesn't really have enough troops uh, to, to stand strong on both fronts. The Austro-Hungarian army has really suffered from a lot of down cuts, and this is largely a result of this uh, split between uh, Austria and Hungary. Hungary has blocked a lot of, uh, of, uh, um, of increases in the army budget. So they don't have many troops, and, and they will really suffer from this throughout the war, uh, that they don't have a, a trained reserve, a large trained reserve. And, um, and Conrad is really, he really needs three armies on each front to, to win an, a successful offensive war in both the East and, uh, and uh, the South. Um, but, he, but he only has, um, oh, sorry, he, he needs uh, four in the, um, in the East and three in the South, but he only has six. Um, so what, what he does is that, that he, um, he, he splits his forces. So, he, so there's three, armies in the east and then two in the south and then one army which sort of can go both way depending on where the offensive should be but he also wants to to fight two offensives he wants uh, an offensive in the south to, to cross serbia once and for all serbia is the arch enemy it's the, the the one they need to get out of the war and they they fear that that uh, keeping serbia there might uh, spark uh, conflicts and ethnic risings within uh, the empire itself so he wants to beat them quickly but he also needs to launch an offensive in the east against Russia to uh, support the, the Germans, who, of course, have uh, placed all their forces in the west against France. Uh, so, so he comes up with the scheme of sending that swing army who, that can go both ways, the second army, that he wants to send it first to, to Austria, win, uh, to Serbia, win a quick victory there, and then send them all the way uh, to the east and be ready for an offensive there. And what will he really happen is that, that this this army uh, to just uh, paraphrase uh, Churchill it will it will just be there enough to uh, to take part in, uh, or it will be in Serbia not long enough to make a difference and it will only be in the east long enough to um, to take part in the defeat there so it's a useless army really for for the first campaign then the fighting begins with the invasion of Serbia on the 12th of August 1914 what happens? Yeah, uh, the invasion begins a few days before the uh, the actual fighting, and um, and the, the the invasion force, uh, which in the beginning of course consists of these two armies plus the swing army, is led by uh, a, a guy called Oskar Potjorek, uh, and he is the uh, governor uh, of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and he is also um, 
in the car with Franz Ferdinand on the 28th of June when he's killed, being in charge of security, which he didn't do well, well at. Ouch. Uh, yeah, it's not not a good good situation. <laughs> but he was also the, um, the he's also the arch rival of of, of Conrad because he was the contender uh, for the uh, the role as chief of staff in 1906. And um, what he actually does in the beginning of the war is that he really underestimates the the Serbs. And he, um, he envisions a, a very quick offensive and that he will just beat them and, and it, it will be no problem at all. He even s- sort of scraps the already existing war plans and, and, and decides on his own scheme of, of uh, launching this invasion across the Drina River. Um, but when you look at it on paper, his army is actually, uh, he has fewer men, he has fewer artillery. Uh, than the uh, the Serbians and many of the Serbians are battle hardened veterans from the Balkan Wars, um, so he's really uh, in for for a hard fight. While he thinks he's in for 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 basically a, a very quick smash, and and then it then it will all be over. Um, yeah, so so um, he launches an uh, an offensive uh, across the Drina River, and he doesn't meet much uh, assist uh, sorry uh, resistance at uh, at first. Uh, and um, the troops march inland, but are very quickly met by very uh, tough opposition. And the, the uh, advance division uh, on a, on a, is on a mountain called the Sear Mountain um, on the 15th of August. is completely overwhelmed by a surprise attack by the Serbs. And um, after about a week, the uh, the uh, complete the uh, the uh, Austro-Hungarian invasion for it is completely shattered and has to flee. And by the twenty fourth of August, the none of none of uh, Potiorek's troops are still on Serbian soil, and he has suffered some twenty four thousand casualties uh, against Serbia's just around eighteen. That's so one really one thing that about the Eastern Front, I think that Western Front people struggle to get their head around is the sheer numbers of men involved. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of people have this idea that um, that that the war in the east is somehow nicer, that it was a safer place to be. It's not the case at all. The the, the casualty figures are just yeah. horrible. And they're horrible, and they dwarf the Western Front in ma- on many occasions. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It's a, a lot more complex, isn't it? So if we look at the Battle of Galicia in 1914, even that's not straightforward, is it? Because that's made up of more than one fight. Yeah, it is. Um, 
it uh, it begins really in uh, uh, around the time when when things are going really bad in in Serbia, and um, the um, the the Battle of Galicia, which is this massive battle, as you say, that is made of, of it's enormous. It, it 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 involves some two million men on both sides, and they're fighting on a front of almost three hundred kilometers. It's enormous. And uh, Conrad is um, is committed to launch this uh, this offensive uh, in the direction of of, of Warsaw uh, to distract the Russians until the Germans have conquered France in the west and is able to shift her armies east. Um, so what he does is he sends two armies, the first and the fourth, uh, north into Russian Poland, while the uh, third army uh, is supposed to hold in the east around Lemberg. Uh, which is the uh, the capital of Austria, uh, Austrian Galicia, um, and I just want to point out that all these places, of course, have many different names. Mm-hmm. And to just <laughs> Lemberg is Lviv or Lvov in whatever languages, and not so for anybody. I'm I'm trying to stick with the 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 ones that are most commonly used in in English literature. Yeah. Um, but some people get very offended if you use the wrong ones, but I'm, I'm not doing it to offend anybody. Um, we also would uh, have five, six, seven, eight episodes if we listed each potential place name <laughs> exactly. every time. And yeah. that is also very correct, but I'm going to go with Lvov because I'm Polish and weird. No one asked you. You're World War II. Be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the third army is holding around Lemberg, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the, uh, the first army is driving toward Lublin. And the fourth is driving toward uh, Holm. Um, and uh, they, they clash with the Russians um, fairly quickly, but they actually do quite well in the first uh, battles of, of uh, Krasnik and uh, Komarov. And uh, they they managed to defeat them. They managed to take around uh, 20,000 Russian prisoners and a number of guns by the uh, 30th of August. But there are some issues there are some uh, some some weaknesses um, showing already while they're winning and that is that that this this tactic of, of of just attacking and attacking and attacking is just costing them so many so many casualties mm-hmm. and uh, and some of the units are suffering 50% losses uh, amongst the, the enlisted men and 75% amongst the officers uh, and it, what really shows is that the the uh, Austro-Hungarian artillery, which has really suffered from from budget cuts before the war, is simply not up to the standard of pretty much any other army's uh, artillery at the time, and especially the Russians who just blast them off. So they're mm. really, really suffering a lot of losses. Um, now, just to um, to illustrate this a little bit, uh, I wanted to read a quote uh, from a uh, a Romanian soldier who fights in Galicia. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he, he, he writes, uh, the Russians usually entrenched at the edge of a wood. Let us approach within three or four hundred paces. And uh, just as we yelled our hurrah for the final assault with the bayonet, opened rapid fire with rifles and machine guns, which decimated our ranks in a few seconds. The few who survived wandered panic-stricken all over Galicia uh, and soon lost any military identity they ever had. That's so they're really, really being blown apart despite the fact that they're actually winning in the beginning, they're suffering enormous casualties. Now, the second part of the the, uh, the uh, Battle of Galicia is where it begins to go really, really uh, wrong. 
Um, and that happens in the east because the third army, which has been tasked with holding around Lemberg, uh, is commanded by this guy named uh, Rudolf Budermann. Um, and he's looking at the first and fourth army and saying, okay, they're winning a lot of victories. I want in on that. Uh, so he begins to to send message after message after message to Conrad uh, to um, to ask if if he can go on the offensive. Um, and, um, and Conrad finally agrees to this for a careful offensive, uh, a careful advance east. But Bruman t- totally ignores this, and he advances as fast as he can, as far as he can, as carelessly as he possibly can do it. Uh, and on the 26th of August, he is crashing headlong into the main strike force of the Russians, which consists of the uh, of, of two massive armies, where one of them is commanded by uh, Alexei Brusilov, who is arguably Russia's most capable general of the war, and who yep. play a, a massive role later on in this story. And uh, the Austro-Hungarians are outnumbered three to one, and the outcome of battle is, is a disaster. They're just completely outnumbered, they're outgunned, the Russian artillery is just blowing them away. Uh, and uh, the losses are absolutely catastrophic. And the third army completely breaks. And some of the regiments, some of the soldiers uh, retreat all the way back until they've reached back to, to, to Lemberg. And that is some 50, 60 kilometers away on foot. Um, and the following day, Conrad orders a retreat to a river called the Gnilla Lipa. Uh, east of Lemberg, and but but they really can't hold here either, and they're they're just again blown back and blown back and blown back um, until on the second uh, of, of September they decide that they can't even hold Lemberg anymore, and they mm. abandoned it to the Russians. This is of course not very good for Conrad. Uh, they've lost an important city. It, they've the Russians have almost broken an, an entire army. Uh, so he immediately uh, orders the fourth army, which is fresh from victory at uh, at Komarov, to turn southeast and attempt to link up with the, the remains of the third army and then recapture Lemberg. Because frankly, uh, at this point, he looks really bad to his girlfriend as well, doesn't he? He does look very bad, and and, and it's something that 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 uh, people around him note that 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 instead of worrying about the battle and the war, he's saying, "Oh, what would she think?" But, oh god! Yeah. You know what he sounds. It reminds me of Asquith sitting mm. there in war cabinet meetings, writing to his mistress. I miss you so much, my <laughs> cuddle bunny. And you're like, have you not got better be things to be thinking about right yeah. now? He re- he reminds me in sappiness of Asquith, and that's not a good look. <laughs> no, but but uh, the uh, the uh, the plan to assist or, or recapture Lemberg is really already doomed at the beginning because he does not have enough men. Uh, so, so what it does is he, he turns uh, the 4th Army southeast, it clashes with the Russians, and but but by pulling southeast, he's leaving a, a gap between his own army uh, and uh, the 1st Army. And this is just open for the Russians to exploit. Uh, and they just pour in and they just absolutely... Uh, you know, it's a ca- it ca- like it's a, a mess. It is a mess, and it's a catastrophe because now the the uh, whole uh, eastern part of the army, the fourth and, and and third army, their flank is being turned, and they're simply ordered to retreat. Uh, and they they will first uh, Conrad will uh, order a retreat all the way to the Sand River, which is some seventy five kilometers west, um, and and that happens on uh, on the uh, the um, the twelfth of September. 
uh, and that really ends this this massive battle of Galicia. It's mad because that time wise, timeline wise, is concurrent with we've just yeah. about got to the Ein and settling down to that. Yeah, in the, in, it's a it's compared a to thing. what's happened in the east, compared to what's actually gone down so far in in the west, is is massive, isn't it? Yeah, when you look at it together, it's really two of the, of the three major battles in the beginning of the war. Uh, the 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 Marne, the uh, Battle of Tannenberg, and the Battle of Galicia, uh, the two very important <laughs> ones uh, it, that, that could possibly have, uh, have done uh, a lot of damage is 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 is, is losses. What are the consequences of just getting smashed off the battlefield? Oh, they're they're absolutely enormous. They're Mm -hmm. absolutely enormous. In just about three weeks, Conrad has lost some 420,000 men. Uh, And that's about half of what he committed in in August. And it's three weeks. And um, uh, if you want to just break it down a bit, it is 20,000 casualties a day. Uh, and more of a hundred thousand of them are dead. A hundred thousand more prisoners, and the size of the Austro-Hungarian peacetime army was just about four hundred and fifty thousand. So he's effectively just lost the entire trained peacetime army in just three weeks. That's it is mad. A disaster, and of course, together with the German defeat on the Marne, the day after uh, he uh, he orders this retreat, uh, all all hopes of, of a quick war is pretty much over and the army's morale is completely shattered and the Germans are really doubting that they can even hold in uh, on the San River which is dominated by uh, a large fortress called the uh, Shemith Alina tried to teach me how to say that it starts with a PR <laughs> set so it's not exactly easy um, but uh, I think I hope I got it right would you, uh, would you like me to repeat it for you yeah do that <laughs> Shemith Shemith yeah, uh, but they, uh, the Germans are, are really doubting that they can hold there, and they they um, they advise them to to simply retreat all the way back to the Carpathian Mountains, uh, and that is what uh, Conrad does. He he pulls back some hundred and fifty kilometers, and he 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 gives up pretty much all of uh, Austrian uh, Galicia. Um, but of course, he he leaves. Around 120,000 soldiers to to garrison this this fortress on the Sand River, uh, and this is really a, a fateful decision, which will have enormous consequences for the war in 1915. Um, and on the 23rd of September, the Russian Third Army lays siege to this fortress, trapping these 120,000 soldiers uh, within. It's just a disaster, isn't it? Um, it is. So. He then spends the rest of 1914 trying to trash Serbia, doesn't he? Yes. Uh, I mean, much much of the uh, the war against Serbia is conducted by by this guy Oskar Pochorek, um, mm-hmm. and uh, he's he's all over trying to to restart his offensive, um, and he he. Uh, he He's really suffered a humiliating defeat uh, in the, in in the first uh, invasion, but he's offered an opportunity to try again when Serbia actually launches an offensive of their own to relieve pressure from their allies uh, in um, in early September and they cross the Sava River into northern Hungarian region called uh, Syria. Um, but it turns bad, and the Austro-Hungarians managed to counterattack and almost completely uh, destroy an entire Serbian division, 
which forces uh, a withdrawal and Pochori can capitalize on this uh, Serbian failure and orders a renewed attack into Serbia, which does make some good progress at first, but it, it, it just bogs down very quickly in the autumn month uh, into trench warfare. And it, by early October, the front is almost completely static once again. And it, it becomes clear that uh, his, second, uh, his second try has failed as well. And then the, Serbia is then hit by a catastrophic um, outbreak of disease, isn't it? The whole country, not just the army. Yeah, it will happen around the uh, the the um, uh, yeah the the autumn month, and it will also be spread to the Austro-Hungarian troops who will carry it oh, around really? to all the other fronts. Um, so it was it, typhoid, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. typhoid is a, is a big one. Yeah, um, yeah. So there is a third attempt, isn't there? There is a third attempt. Um, there is a third attempt in um, in uh, in October, uh, and it. Oh, sorry, not in October. That was the first one in in November. Um, he uh, Patriarch really desperately needs to save his reputation and and cross the Serbs. Uh, so he orders another offensive um, on the sixth of October uh, of November. Sorry. Um, against the Serbs, who have by th- by then really run out of of a lot of their men, a lot of their uh, arms and and supplies and ammunition, so things go better for him this time. Uh, this he uh, he managed to punch through the the Serbian line and they retreat to the river called uh, Kolobara. Um, the Austro-Hungarians capture uh, the city of uh, Valjevo, and on the fifteenth they actually capture Belgrade. The um, the Serbian capital in the uh, in the in the um, in the December, um, and he is finally able to present the emperor with uh, with some actual gains. And on the on the second of December, he 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 writes this uh, letter to him saying that he's laying Belgrade as his at uh, his Majesty's feet. However, on the same day, the Serbs launch a major counteroffensive along the entire line, which breaks the Austro-Hungarian front, and by the 15th of December, um, Belgrade is again in Serbian, Serbian hands, and his third attempt at crushing Serbia has failed. It is absolutely humiliating. It's also humiliating for the for the emperor, and um, Portiorek is, is finally retired in the end of December, but his three campaigns have lost the Austro-Hungarians somewhere between a quarter of a million, 300,000 casualties. Wow. So let's head to the beginning of 1915. What state is the Austro-Hungarian army in and what are the consequences of this? Well, it's poor. It's very, very, very poor. Uh, And following just about four months of fighting, the situation is absolutely critical. I mean, you just have to to look at the the numbers. They've lost uh, one and a quarter million casualties in just about uh, these these, uh, four months of fighting. And that's about 9,000 casualties per day on average uh, from the time fighting began in, in mid-August. Now, uh, what's more, that's also twice the, more than twice the size of the, uh, the, um, the peacetime army. And uh, Austria-Hungary already doesn't have many trained reserves, so they really have a, a manpower issue already at this point. Uh, and what do you do when you need more men and you want them fast? Well, you lower the minimum age uh, and and raise the maximum age of conscription and you cut down on training. They go from eight to six weeks first and then all the way down to two weeks of training. 
uh, you also slang the rules of, of uh, when you're unfit to, 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 to serve, uh, meaning that, that men who were initially uh, rejected for being unfit with injuries and so on are, are called up again. Um, they've also lost a lot of uh, firearms. Um, this is mad. We're, we don't get to this point where we're having to lower the standards for a long, long time no, in Britain. No, it, yeah. it is. But, but it really is a, a dire situation. Mm. The uh, the army has lost a million rifles of their initial stuff of of just two hundred of uh, two point five million. And but I they're, guess they're having they're, the same uh, problems as every other country with munitions production at the moment. That they just oh, they are. Expect, they they, they yeah. can. I mean, if you just look at it, they 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 lose a million rifles, but they can only produce one hundred and forty thousand in the same period. So they yeah. are just they don't have the weapons, they don't have the ammunition, they don't have anything that 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 even makes up for this, even such a thing as, as uniform production, which is just something we just gloss over completely. The Austro-Hungarian army uh, spends 875 million uh, kron, as is their currency, uh, on uniforms alone during the first year of the war. And that's 18% more than the empire used on the entire army in 1913, just on wow. uniforms. And they just... They have to uh, go to replacement uniforms almost immediately. The old uniforms are, are being completely replaced with a new color. The pike gray, which is why I called my account pike gray, <laughs> uh, is uh, replaced by the field gray. All these special standard, uh, uh, special uniforms are being standardized to one cut and just to make it all simple. And the army just doesn't look at all the same almost mm. at the beginning of 1915 uh, as it did in, in 1914. That's mad. What are the Germans making of all this? Because they're obviously reliant on Austria-Hungary as a, as a massively contributing ally, aren't they? Yeah, well, the, 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 uh, the state, if you will, of the, uh, the Austro-Hungarian and German alliance is, is really not good almost immediately. I mean, this is the famous saying that victory has a thousand files, but defeat is an orphan. And that really goes for, for what's going on on the Eastern Front at this time. And the blame game is just relentless. The, the Germans are saying that the Austro-Hungarians are incompetent and that a German victory in the, in, in the East is being spoiled by their, their allies' many defeats. Conrad are claiming that the Germans screwed him over by not supporting his offensives in August. The Germans are saying that the Austro-Hungarians... Uh, are pulling back when they need them or, or, or giving up territory, leaving the, the Germans to fight. And Conrad is, is, uh, is uh, yelling at, at Falkenhayn, who is taking over for, for, for Molke at this point as, as the German chief of staff, for not being willing to help him mount more offensive to, to save these 120,000 soldiers inside the, uh, the uh, fortress, fortress uh, Chemish which is actually relieved very shortly by, by the Austro-Hungarians in, in the fall, but, but is quickly just uh, besieged again. And um, it really is just shifting blame, shifting blame all the time, and it really deteriorates from this point on. The first three months of 1915 are just a tragedy for the Austro-Hungarians. What happens? Yes, the... Uh, with the uh, with the Balkan front being relatively quiet now, uh, Conrad's attention is solely on this fortress, the uh, besieged uh, Austro-Hungarian fortress, and all of his strategy and everything is just going to be focused on relieving these men, c cost what it may, and it will cost a lot. Um, 
so over the course of, of about three months from uh, mid-January to, to, to start April 1915, he's going to launch offensive after offensive through the Carpathian Mountains in absolutely horrible winter conditions in order to reach this besieged garrison. The uh, so-called Carpathian Winter or Carpathian Winter War uh, will become synonymous with extreme human suffering. And uh, the Austro-Hungarian regiments are poorly equipped. Uh, they have almost no winter clothing. They're poorly trained. Many of the troops are replacement with just these two weeks of training, and they're poorly supplied, and they will just be f- swallowed up in, in Conrad's crazy, futile operations. And uh, it would take uh, too long to go into detail of, of every single offensive here in these passes. But each time he launches an offensive, the Russians immediately launch a counter-offensive on, along the entire front, so he can't shift any troops around if he actually manages to, uh, to, to have a breakthrough. And uh, again, Austrian artillery support is terrible, uh, and the fighting is in the mountains, where mountain troops could have been nice, but they've all been slaughtered in Galicia the year before, and the casualties are just absolutely staggering. Their entire formation are just lost in the snow, and as temperatures, they plummet below 25 uh, below Celsius, and some units suffer as many as 95% casualties. And one division, I believe it was the 42nd Hundred Division, but don't hang me up on that, there's 2,000 soldiers who freeze to death in just a couple of days. This and just desertion spike. Yeah, it is insane. Desertion spike, suicide rate spike. The soldiers are just desperate for any way out they can, and this is just um, an absolute hell on earth. Uh, but and ultimately, it is completely useless because uh, they they cannot reach this fortress, uh, which in uh, in uh, in March is running out of food. They launch one crazy uh, attempt uh, as a breakout from within, which fails, and the fortress commanders blows up all the, the forts surrounding the city and, and surrender uh, around 110,000 soldiers with uh, 2,500 uh, 2, officers and nine generals become prisoners in this, this thing. But the cost of, of Conrad's offensives in the Carpathians dwarfs this number completely. According to Austro-Hungarian figures, which is probably even too low, the uh, the winter uh, campaign cost the Austro-Hungarians eight hundred thousand casualties in about three months. Yes, and just, does he face any sanctions for this? No, he doesn't. Yeah, but to put this into to some this mad number, which is really hard to to comprehend. The French and the Germans suffer around 750,000 casualties during the Battle of Verdun, which lasts from February to December 1916. And he loses 800,000 soldiers Just in, this in three months. one side. Yeah, and the Russians, they lose 1.2 million men. So they, this, this Carpathian winter battles, they lose more in three months than the Battle of Verdun and the Battle of the Somme combined. And it's hardly written about at all and it's just impossible to wrap your head around those numbers will you write uh, about these battles for us for the uh, great war group yeah sure. i feel like somebody needs to tell the story of these poor men yeah. that went through this yeah it's but just, it's yeah. it's insane and the blame starts immediately the 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 
the Czechs especially receive a lot of the blame for this. Um, and this is a, a thing that we'll go through. You asked about what what is happened to Conrad. Well, a lot of the blame is being shifted to these uh, ethnic minorities who is claimed that they, they're just yeah, I was going to say, the, it's such yeah. a multinational force. Does that just mean that it's easy to just say, oh, yeah, blame the Czechs? They were robbed. Yeah, it is. It, it, oh. happens. it happens already at this, the uh, first invasion of Serbia. The, uh, the, the division, which is overwhelmed there, uh, is the last Czech division. And they are completely, like, they just make scapegoats for the entire debacle. And it will happen again here. A famous episode uh, is the um, uh, is the uh, 28th Infantry Regiment, which is claimed to, to have just walked over to the Russians and deserted. Um, and that was accepted for many, many, many years until very recently. That that was what had happened until uh, uh, a historian called uh, uh, Richard Lyne uh, uncovered some, some archival documents saying that, that these troops were not just running over because they were descending. They were just sent into battle with no training, just after terrible conditions, and they're basically surrounded uh, and, and forced to surrender. Uh, but of course, nobody wants to listen to that in the Austro-Hungarian army. They're just to blame for that, and the, the regiment in, in question is, uh, is dissolved by the emperor, along with another one um, for, for, for some... For, uh, yeah, for treason, basically. That's insane. Thank you so much for coming on to kick us off You're with welcome. this three-part series on Austria-Hungary and the First World War. I think we'll leave it there because we have something big, don't we, that start, we'll start off part two, and that's the Gorlitz-Tarnov offensive. Um, so we will do that. We'll start with that next time. But in the meantime, Nikolai, thank you so much for this so far. You're welcome. Join us tomorrow when Catherine Schofield of King's College London will be with us to talk all about Indian courtesans. Now, don't be thinking about any badly uh, viewed sex workers. This is not what this is. Indian courtesans were epic and brilliant, and there were some outstanding women in there, and it was by no means a smutty career path. So join us to find all about how they impacted Indian culture for many, many centuries and how basically then the East India Company came along and screwed it all up. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.